Hey, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the 10th session in our series exploring Tolkien's Middle-earth. Tonight, we cover chapters 11 and 12 of The Hobbit on the doorstep and inside information. This is assuming, of course, that my voice holds up, as I'm sure you can hear by now. It's not quite where it should be, you guys. I had to cancel last week's session because I literally had no voice at all. I was talking in a hoarse whisper for about four days, which... Believe me, for someone who talks as much as I talk, was a very difficult prospect indeed. Now I'm back and my voice is at least audible, broadly speaking, but I'm hoping it's going to hold up tonight. And it's a tough session because we have a lot of material to cover. Tonight we venture all the way to the Lonely Mountain and then inside the Lonely Mountain and we meet finally Smaug the dragon. It is going to be, hopefully, a very fun discussion indeed. I can't wait to get started. As ever, you can ask questions and make comments in the YouTube chat window right next to the video on the... uh, It's all working? This is good? Yes, clean shaven. Yes. I felt like a bit of a change. Hot weather here in Oklahoma. So, uh, yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) Good. Didn't Alistair have a beard? Asked Sam. I did. I did. It's true. Um... So you can comment in the YouTube chat window right next to the YouTube video on, of course, the YouTube page. Where else would you find a YouTube video but on a YouTube page? Um, And you can also find me on Twitter. We're using the hashtag T-A-B again. That's tab again, I suppose. Um, We're using that because there have been some changes in the the behind-the-scenes administration here. More on that in just a moment. If you have thoughts after the fact, then you can still find me on Twitter using the T-A-B again hashtag, or you can find me directly via Paper Bullets at Paper Bullets on Twitter, or at Point North Media, or by emailing pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Mentioning Point North Media, of course, gives me a perfect segue into, hey, you guys, I started a new company. Point North Media is my new media company is my new podcast platform is really what it is. It is a place where I can continue to have the conversations that I've been having over the last few years. I'm going to continue there and back again over on the Point North website, which I should say, if you're listening to this live, the Point North website is not available just yet. There are a few things that I have to take care of before I release it to the public. But if you're listening to this in the podcast version, then visit pointnorthmedia.com to see what we're doing over there. It has been really exciting over the course of the last week launching this new company. The response and the support have been just extraordinary, as they always are with you fabulous people. But here's the thing. Producing this kind of content is time-consuming, and starting a new business is never easy. And there is a limited window where you get to make a strong first impression. I want to run lots of shows. I want to have lots of conversations. I want to continue to have these vibrant and complex and sophisticated discussions, the kind of discussions that we've been having, I guess, ever since the first Outlander seminar, certainly since the first Harry Potter seminar. I want to continue to have these conversations and I want to have them with you. But in order for that to happen, I need your help and I need your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. If you can spare a dollar a month or whatever you can afford, I would really appreciate it. Every single dollar goes into Point North. It helps me make new shows, make new content, hopefully someday soon, upgrade my video setup, hopefully someday soon, upgrade my audio setup, more better content for you and for everyone else who listens. That's patreon.com slash point north media. All right. Yes, 
can only knits says point north that's that explains why i couldn't find the site yeah it's true it's 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 taking its time yes good hope tells me that she's taking a break from mass effect andromeda for me or for me and bilbo which i completely appreciate yes good good all right let's get into this thing then shall we because we have a lot to discuss and and as if it wasn't enough that we're going to discuss these two chapters tonight, I want to begin, of course, by going backwards. I, I mentioned at the end of the last session that I wanted to talk a little more about Lake Town, and I wanted to talk more about the time that we spend at Lake Town in that chapter and its impact as a, a fulcrum around which the story turns. And that, I think, cannot readily be overestimated. I think that the impact of this chapter on the shape of the story as a whole is nothing short of profound. Up until this point in the story, the dwarves have been engaged in a treasure hunt. In chapter four, it is outright referred to as a treasure hunt. Hey, we're going to go to the Lonely Mountain. We're going to win back our gold and jewels from him. And then we're going to just really celebrate. Just like a huge party is going to be great. The problem is that the treasure hunt aspect of the story, I think it's fair to say, is the weakest aspect of the story. So weak is it, in fact, that Smaug himself will call it out at the end of tonight's reading. So what do we do? When we arrive at Lake Town, Tolkien completely reconstructs his sense of this adventure story. This chapter is the first time in his original drafts that Tolkien refers to Thorin as Thorin Oakenshield. This is the first time that Thorin takes on this mantle of greatness. This is the first time that Thorin becomes the returning king. And that, of course, is seeded back through the novel. In later revisions, Tolkien would fold those elements back in the first half of the novel. But this is the turning point. This is the fulcrum. This is the point at which Thorin's character comes into focus, the core conflict comes into focus, the idea of returning to the Lonely Mountain, the idea of reclaiming Erebor, the idea of Thorin becoming once again the king under the mountain. These are powerful, iconic, vital, archetypal ideas. This suddenly becomes, from its humble beginnings as a let's go and steal a dragon's horde story, this becomes one of the most vibrant excuse me, and elemental plots that Tolkien will write. It's a plot so vibrant and elemental, one might argue that he revisits it in part in The Lord of the Rings. This is a vital story, and it becomes vital here. So what I want to do is take a very quick look at, uh, I want to take a very quick look at a couple of, of passages that we got in Lake Town that we can, that we can dip back into. The Lake Town chapter, of course, chapter 10 that we discussed uh, two weeks ago now, but in the previous podcast episode. So let's begin by taking a look at Thorin here as the dwarves first arrive in Lake Town. I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain. I return, cried Thorin in a loud voice from the door before the captain could say anything. All leapt to their feet. The master of the town sprang from his great chair, but none rose in greater surprise than the raftmen of the elves who were sitting at the lower end of the hall. Pressing forward before the master's table, they cried, These are prisoners of our king that have escaped, wandering vagabond dwarves that could not give any good account of themselves, sneaking through the woods and molesting our people. Is this true? asked the master. 
As a matter of fact, he thought it far more likely than the return of the king under the mountain, if any such person had ever existed. It is true that we were wrongfully waylaid by the elven king and imprisoned without cause as we journeyed back to our own land, answered Thorin. But lock nor bar may hinder the homecoming spoken of old. Nor is this town in the Wood Elves' realm. I speak to the master of the town of the men of the lake, not to the raft men of the king. Now, the reason that we're looking at this is to mark the transition in Thorin's own tone. Because for all that he has been the heir apparent to the kingdom of Erebor, for all that he has been a, a righteous and noble dwarf of, of unimpeachable lineage, he hasn't been terribly impressive. He hasn't been terribly noble. He has spoken, broadly speaking, in similar terms to the other dwarves. Oftentimes, Bilbo himself is more well-spoken than Thorin. And I mention this specifically because, of course, being well-spoken is a token of regality. It is a token of, of natural and innate superiority. We would expect Thorin, as a, a prince, as the heir apparent, to bring with him, to carry with him, some kind of presence, some kind of charisma, some skill with oratory. And we don't really see it until now, until this point in chapter 10. I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain, I return. That is powerful language. That is emphatic language. It is almost biblical language. But things get really impressive right here at the end of this passage. It is true we were wrongly waylaid by the Elven King and imprisoned without cause as we journeyed back to our own land, but lock nor bar may hinder the homecoming spoken of old. Here, Thorin isn't just wielding his, his oratory, his rhetorical skill. Here, he's laying direct claim to, to authority itself. He's drawing upon this history of, of antiquity, this, this history of prophecy, this foretelling. And that's enormously powerful because he is here asserting his right to be heard, asserting his right to aid. Becca Eller here in the YouTube chat says, I find Thorin exhausting. And she gets a lot of support, let me say. I can completely see that. I can completely see why you do. He's not... Hmm. He's not the most likable character, you guys. He's, he's pretty tough to get into, yes. Mm. And Robert Hickok here makes a very fine distinction. He says, not a fine upstanding dwarf, rather petulant and easily indignant, but still a noble king. That, I think, is a very important uh, distinction there. Good. And wow, Becca's getting a lot of support for how exhausting we find Thorin. I will admit Thorin is not my favorite character until the very end of the book. So if this is your first time through The Hobbit, or if you have only the fuzziest memory of how the book ends, do stick with it. As Kate Matt says here on Twitter, kings don't rule by popularity. Very true. And uh, Kate says, uh, the other Kate, I guess, and other Kate, we have an abundance of Catherines, to borrow a popular phrase. We have a Kate here in YouTube who says, Thorin is no Aragorn. A truer statement has perhaps never been made. Yes. Good. So 
I wanted to look here at the exact cadence of Thorin's language, because as we look at the purpose and the weight and the, the rhetorical impact of language, and as we look at the way that language, particularly high oratory, is reflective of a particular social standing, more on this later when we get to Smaug the dragon, we must also contrast this with Bilbo during his time at Lake Town. Some of the songs were old ones, but some of them were quite new and spoke confidently of the sudden death of the dragon and of cargoes of rich presents coming down the river to Lake Town. These were inspired largely by the master, and they did not particularly please the dwarves, but in the meantime they were well contented, and they quickly grew fat and strong again. Indeed, within a week they were quite recovered, fitted out in fine cloth of their proper colors, with beards combed and trimmed and proud steps. Thorin looked and walked as if his kingdom was already regained, and Smaug chopped up into little pieces. Then, as he had said, the dwarf's good feelings towards the little hobbit grew stronger every day. There were no more groans or grumbles. They drank his health, and they patted him on the back, and they made a great fuss of him, which was just as well, for he was not feeling particularly cheerful. He had not forgotten the look of the mountain, nor the thought of the dragon, and he had, besides, a shocking cold. For three days he sneezed and coughed, and he could not go out, and even after that his speeches at banquets were limited to, Thank you very much. The notion of Bilbo's sudden head cold, this is, of course, a notion that I can... uh, that I can uh, empathize with quite profoundly at this point. The notion of Bilbo's head cold may feel comedic. It may feel somewhat silly, but it shows a couple of different things here. The first of which is Bilbo's incompatibility with his surroundings, with his immediate context. He is not of the lake. And I think it's vital to understand that as the dwarves are are restored as they are growing haler and heartier, as they are growing fatter and happier and stronger, Bilbo is really tracking the opposite trajectory. Bilbo is getting worse. He's getting sicker. And that, I think, speaks to this idea that now here in the shadow of the Lonely Mountain, now here in the shadow of Erebor, the dwarves, in a sense, are home. And Bilbo, of course, is anything but At the same time, I think that Bilbo's inability to speak, his inability to express himself, contrasts rather beautifully with Thorin's growing eloquence. As he speaks more and more, and in richer and richer and higher and higher terms and tones, so Bilbo's ever-reducing vocabulary becomes, becomes a really effective counterpoint, I think. Bilbo is here heavy with real concern, heavy with real fear, wondering what on earth, what on earth they are going to do next. Whereas Thorin, as we see here, acts as though he believes that Smaug has already been defeated and his kingdom restored. Thorin is theatrical, but he is not living in the real world. Bilbo is anything but theatrical at this point. I doubt that he has time even to utter uh, a word or two of prose, let alone a word or two of poetry. So Bilbo is anything but eloquent, anything but but oratorically gifted at this point. But he is armed with a more authentic, a more true perspective. That's vital because this is going to set the stage for 
what becomes the final showdown, what becomes the final twist in the ongoing conflict between Thorin and Bilbo. All of that stems from, I, I would argue, this time here in, in Lake Town. Good. Yes, as Sarah Thomas says here in the YouTube chat, when you travel with someone and you're both foreigners, there is a connection. But when you visit someone's, when you visit someone's foreign to you home, it can make you feel very isolated. Yes, I think there's really something to that. The, the degree to which Lake Town is familiar with the dwarves is, of course, problematic. There's a beat in that last slide that I completely love. Some of the songs were old ones, but some of them were quite new and spoke confidently of the sudden death of the dragon and of cargoes of rich presents coming down the river to Lake Town. These were inspired largely by the master. This is, I think, one of the only times in The Hobbit that we hear about music being used as propaganda. And there is something uncomfortable there is something unsettling about the thought of the master drawing upon old songs and writing new songs as a means of reassuring the populace that, hey, you guys, everything's going to be fine. That's, hmm, that sits uncomfortably in Tolkien's body of work, I think. Yeah. Dylan the Joel says, just got here. Did we already talk about how Bilbo is becoming the dwarf surrogate Gandalf? Not yet, but we will. Good catch. Yes. All right. Um, excellent, excellent, excellent. Let's, um, oh, I, I did want to show you one other thing just before we move into tonight's actual reading, since we've been running for 20 minutes already. This is Tolkien's illustration of Lake Town itself. I know a few of you had trouble visualizing Lake Town, had trouble really with, with any sense of what Lake Town is. And this is how Tolkien depicted it. Driven from the coast, they have set these enormous pylons into the soft mud beneath the lake and constructed what is, in effect, I suppose, a giant pier. This is a floating city that, that occupies the middle of this lake in the shadow of, uh, of the Lonely Mountain itself. I just love Tolkien's original art here. and wanted to share this one, really. Good. Excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. <coughs> this is going to get worse before it gets better, you guys. Okay. So let's um, move onward then to tonight's reading into chapter 11 on the doorstep in which we ascend at last the Lonely Mountain and then try to work out what comes next. This is taken from the very beginning of the chapter here. It was a weary journey, and a quiet and stealthy one. There was no laughter, or a song, or a sound of harps, and the pride and hopes which had stirred in their hearts at the singing of old songs by the lake died away to a plodding gloom. They knew that they, knew that they were drawing near to the end of their journey, and that it might be a very horrible end. The land about them grew bleak and barren, though once, as Thorin told them, it had been green and fair. There was little grass, and before long there was neither bush nor tree, and only broken and blackened stumps to speak of ones long vanished. They were come to the desolation of the dragon, and they were come at the waning of the year. They reached the skirts of the mountain all the same without meeting any danger or any sign of the dragon other than the wilderness he had made about his lair. The mountain lay dark and silent before them, and ever higher above them. They made their first camp on the western side of the great southern spur, which ended in a height called Raven Hill. On this there had been an old watch post, but they dared not climb it yet. It was too exposed. 
So here we see the desolation of Smaug, the the destruction wrought by... Well, see, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Is the destruction wrought directly by Smaug? Does Smaug fly in ever-increasing circles around the Lonely Mountain, just blasting the earth with his fiery breath? Or is there something else happening here? Is this related in part to what we saw back in Mirkwood? We discussed at the time how Mirkwood had been corrupted, fairy though it is, otherworldly though it is, Mirkwood had become in part corrupted by the fell influence of the necromancer at Dol Guldur. Well, if the necromancer's presence, if his evil can corrupt the land around him to such an extent, what about the evil of Smaug? What about his presence here in the Lonely Mountain? Is he flying around blasting the earth? Or is there something more subtle, more treacherous, more hmm, uncomfortable happening? What do you think? Good. Uh, Robert Hickok says, contrast the vista of the Lonely Mountain as Bilbo rode to the Long Lake on a barrel and now this journey. Wow. Yes. Yes. Good. Uh, Damn Dirty Gamer says, the implication from the text is that Smaug has been unseen in many years. That is true, though it isn't also true, uh, it isn't also clear, I should say, how long the desolation has been desolate. It's entirely possible that, that this was ravaged by Smaug very early in his residence at the Lonely Mountain and still has yet to recover. Um, but yes. Jackie says it reminds me of the children of Hurin. That's something we'll talk about at some point, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. All right. Excellent. Um, good, good, good. Okay. So, crossing the desolation, we see, we see a weight settle upon the dwarves. We see the dwarves begin what is going to be a pattern for the next handful of chapters. Well, they swing wildly from really unfounded optimism to sudden and intractable depression and misery. They, they will become bleak at the drop of a hat. And we'll continue to track that, of course, as we move forward. But this... This journey across the desolation is so much more than simply a, a geographical process. It is also, I think, a profoundly internal, a profoundly psychological process, because now the dwarves are coming face to face with their home, and they are crossing this land that has been blasted and bleached and can sustain and support almost no life. They are coming to terms with the idea that the kingdom that they have sought to steal from, to, to recover their treasures from, and now in part the kingdom that they want to simply reclaim has been undercut, has been damaged in a way that perhaps isn't simple to rectify. We'll talk about another theory on the, uh, yes, we'll talk about another theory on the, um, on the Desolation of Smaug a little later, yes. Though uh, Robert is saying here in the YouTube chat, remember the dragons are of Morgoth, they are his creations. This is a foreshadowing of the Desolation of Mordor, a la Sauron's Morgoth number one, a la Sauron Morgoth number one. And I think that's, um, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's very astute, Robert. Um, the problem I think too is that that isn't as evident from 
the Hobbit itself as we might want it to be. We can certainly backfill, and it is consistent enough that we can we can build up our, our understanding of Smaug's dragon sickness in particular in order to support that thesis, but it's not quite, quite there. Yeah. Good. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So from there, we ascend the Lonely Mountain and... We find our way to the location of the secret door foretold so long ago on Thorin's map. Bilbo found sitting on the doorstep lonesome and wearisome. There was not really a doorstep, of course, really, but they used to call the little grassy space between the wall and the opening the doorstep in fun, remembering Bilbo's words long ago at the unexpected party in his hobbit hall when he said they could sit on the doorstep till they thought of something and sit and think they did, or wandered aimlessly about the glummer and glummer they became. Their spirits had risen a little at the discovery of the path, but now they sank into their boots, and yet they would not give it up and go away. The hobbit was no longer much brighter than the dwarves. He would do nothing but sit with his back to the rock face and stare away west through the opening, over the cliff, over the wide lands to the black wall of Mirkwood and the distances beyond in which he sometimes thought he could catch glimpses of the misty mountains. Far. If the dwarves asked him what he was doing, he answered, You said sitting on the doorstep and thinking would be my job, not to mention getting inside, so I am sitting and thinking. But I am afraid he was not thinking much of the job, but of what lay beyond the blue distance, the quiet western land and the hill and his hobbit hole under it. So here we have possibly the clearest recollection in quite some time of Bilbo's longing for his home as he looks west, tries to discern the route that he has taken, not in its specifics perhaps, but in its generalities. He's trying to see his home and it is, of course, shrouded by mist. That's enormously powerful. It's entirely possible to use that kind of distance to evoke nothing more than sadness, nothing more than homesickness, nothing more than that kind of, of tragic, of, of heartbreaking separation. But here we're doing something even more important. And we do that in part by measuring the steps of Bilbo's journey as we look back toward the West. Here he is sitting on the lonely mountain looking out and he can see the black scar of Mirkwood and beyond that and beyond that and beyond that. We're retracing that symmetrical path that hinges around the Misty Mountains, which we discovered, uh, which we discussed, excuse me, before. Here again, we are drawing a direct comparison between the hill and the mountain, though for the first time we're doing it from the opposite perspective. And one of the consequences of that is that we are reminded that there is no comfort here, that there is no abundance of food, there is no great belief in the future. This either works right now or it doesn't at all. And that's challenging. That's enormously heartbreaking, particularly when throughout this chapter, Bilbo is taking direct action. He wants to continue to, to have effect though that's limited pretty much to sitting on the doorstep. Yeah. Oh, Jackie says, it's interesting that Frodo and Bilbo are the ones to open these magical dwarf gates. That's true. That's a very good pull. I like that a lot. 
Yes. Yes, uh, Todoist411 asks, what would the metabolism of a dragon even be like? Could Snuggha potentially eat all the plants to mark his territory? I'm not sure that dragons are vegetarian. I'm not sure that dragons could even metabolize that kind of, uh, that kind of food, but certainly it's a possibility. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Mm. And Robert Hickok says, Bilbo sounds like Gandalf frustrated at the gates of Moria. Yes. When we hit the gates of Moria, we will certainly look back at, at this encounter and see those echoes and similarities as we discuss so often here on the seminar. Okay. Good. Good, good, good. Okay. Um, so completely miserable. Um, yes, completely miserable. Bilbo sits on the doorstep until we are forcibly reminded of the words of the moon letters on Thorin's map. These are the letters that were, uh, that were discovered by Elrond at Rivendell, of course. Stand by the grey stone when the thrush knocks, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Now, here again, we, we discussed this a little at the time, but here again, we can see something that is more than fortunate, something that is more than simple instruction. This is, at the very least, part prophecy. Stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks. That's okay. I mean, stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks. Okay, that could be any time. That's just fine. And the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Is that possible? Could that have been constructed by these dwarves as skilled as they are? Well, I have no idea. But this does speak to me of a more theological argument, of a more creationist argument, I suppose. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because when we stand by the gray stone and the thrush knocks, we, we change keys here. We change tones in the prophecy. The setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. That is outright prediction. That is predictive right there. And then, of course, we get to Bilbo. At that very moment, he heard a sharp crack behind him. There on the gray stone in the grass was an enormous thrush, nearly coal black, its pale yellow breast freckled with dark spots. Crack! It had caught a snail and was knocking it on the stone. Crack! Crack! Suddenly, Bilbo understood. Forgetting all danger, he stood on the ledge and hailed the dwarves, shouting and waving. Those that were nearest came tumbling over the rocks and as fast as they could along the ledge to him, wondering what on earth was the matter. The others shouted to be hauled up by ropes. Except Bomber, of course. He was asleep. Quickly, Bilbo explained. They all fell silent, the hobbits standing by the grey stone and the dwarves with wagging beards watching impatiently. The sun... Okay, we got a little video problem here. <laughs> okay. Um, a small video problem. Everything is fine, you guys. Let's see if I can't. Uh... <laughs> it is always something, I swear. Okay. This doesn't seem to be working at all. What has happened to my video? 
<clears throat> yes, I know. I, I'm seeing here that you can all still hear me, but this is, um, yes, something very, very odd has happened, and I'm not sure entirely what it is, but I don't think that I can... Uh, I don't think that I can suspend this and then come back to it, which is kind of a huge problem. Yes, and my, my, my neck has entirely disappeared. Yes, this is a terrible thing. Okay, let's... Um... <laughs> okay, uh, I don't seem to be able to turn off the camera either. Oh, you guys. Okay, let me see what I can do. Maybe it will reset. Maybe it will come back. Um, we can only do as we can. Okay, I should be back. Everything is working. Something to edit out of the podcast now. It's all fine. I'm just going to wait for you guys to catch up so that you can see that I'm here and it's all going to work. There I am. Okay, good. Mm. Okay, now we're back. Uh, let's pick up where we were. Um, let me share the slide with you again then, I guess. Ah, oh, you guys. Quickly, Bilbo explained. They all fell silent. The hobbits standing by the gray stone and the dwarves with wagging beards watching impatiently. The sun sank lower and lower, and their hopes fell. It sank into a belt of reddened cloud and disappeared. The dwarves groaned, but still Bilbo stood almost without moving. The little moon was dipping to the horizon. Evening was coming on. Then, suddenly, when their hope was lowest, a red ray of the sun escaped like a finger through a rent in the cloud. A gleam of light came straight through the opening into the bay and fell on the smooth rock face. The old thrush, who had been watching from a high perch with beady eyes and head cocked on one side, gave a sudden trill. There was a loud crack. A flake of rock split from the wall and fell. A hole appeared suddenly, about three feet from the ground. So, I'm just making sure that everything here is working before I start talking about this. Yes. Yes, and Jackie calls it out perfectly here in the YouTube chat. The dwarves give up so soon and nearly miss their chance entirely, and it is Bilbo who remembers the prophecy, which is weird because Thorin was right there. He knew that it was the last light of Durin's day, and he knows because he talks about autumn coming on, or autumn coming to an end, I should say, right at the beginning of the chapter, that Durin's day is upon them, and yet they give up. And this speaks to that, that emotional pendulum that I was talking about earlier. The dwarves swing from absolute confidence in faith to absolute depression and despair. There seems to be no, no middle ground there at all. Yes. Good. And we've established by this point, too, that... Um, We've established by this point, too, that um, the, the door is completely impervious to any kind of physical or mechanical attack, that it rejects the picks of the dwarves. It's definitely real dwarvish magic. It is the real deal, which lends additional credence to the idea that this is, in fact, prophecy, particularly that last beat there. The old thrush who had been watching from a high perch with beady eyes and head cocked to one side gave a sudden trill. There was a loud crack. Of course, another crack here. Even as the bird sings and the keyhole is revealed, I guess it's possible that this is orchestrated by magic, that there is something at play here, but it feels to me much more convincing that this is simple prophecy. And that's, 
I guess perhaps not simple, actually, because prophecy within the pages of The Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit too is enormously challenging. We know from the Ainulindale, from the very beginning of the Silmarillion, that all that will be has been, in a sense, foretold. That the song was sung of Arda before it was ever created. That, that the singing of the song of Arda was, in part, its creation. And all that Arda would be, all that Middle-earth would be, was contained within the song. That's genuinely fascinating. And it allows us to speculate and draw some really interesting conclusions about what that means. But it also might distract us. It also might pull us out of a much more plausible explanation, which is simply that some higher power has an interest in Thorin's quest here. We will discover as we read uh, the quest of Erebor that um, that it is indeed very fortunate that this quest is a success. Yes. Good. Good. Um, let me see here. Good. Okay. Everybody knows Thorin, says Robert. Don't be a Thorin. Yes. And, and Dylan says, Bilbo always seems to be the first to notice the weirds going, the weird goings on. Yes, I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Good. And Shane asks, is the podcast under a new name for Point North? Uh, no, the podcast will continue just as it always has. Uh, the audio version will appear in your regular podcast feeds. You don't have to resubscribe. You don't have to do anything. Hopefully it will all be a seamless transition. Can't make that kind of rash prediction, I suppose, but it should be fairly straightforward at least. Good. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Let's um, let's um, take a look at. Yes, moving on to chapter twelve. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, let's move on to chapter twelve. Inside information, in which we deal with um, we deal with Thorin again, not being at his absolute best. For a long time, the dwarves stood in the dark before the door and debated, until at last Thorin spoke. Now is the time for our esteemed Mr. Baggins, who has proved himself a good companion on our long road and a hobbit full of courage and resource far exceeding his size, and if I may say so, possessed of good luck far exceeding the usual allowance. Now is the time for him to perform the service for which he was included in our company. Now is the time for him to earn his reward. You are familiar with Thorin's style on important occasions, so I will not give you any more of it, though he went on a good deal longer than this. It certainly was an important occasion, but Bilbo felt impatient, but now he was quite familiar with Thorin too, and he knew just what he was driving at. If you mean you think it's my job to go into the secret passage first, O Thorin, Thrain, son, Oakenshield, may your beard grow ever longer, he said crossly, say so at once and have done. I might refuse. I've got you out of two messes already, which were hardly in the original bargain, so that I am, I think, already owed some reward. But third time pays for all, as my father used to say, and somehow I don't think I shall refuse. Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days. He meant last spring before he left his own house, but it seemed centuries ago. But anyway, I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it over. Now who's coming with me? As Jackie says here in the YouTube chat, even the narrator isn't a huge fan of Thorin, it seems. I like that rather a lot. Yes. Good. <laughs> Excuse me, I do apologize. Um, 
Yes, as Kate says here, narrator is like, I roll Thorin, am I right? And Sarah says, little sassy hobbit, I completely love the, uh, I completely love Bilbo's response. If you th- if, if you mean you think it is my job to go into the secret passage first, O Thorin, Thray and Son, Oak and Shield, may your beard grow ever longer. Say so at once and have done. That is unarguably, I think, the sassiest thing we've heard from Bilbo so far, and maybe one of the sassiest things we hear from Bilbo at all. Yes, good, good. Um, right. And of course, we have here too, let me cancel that uh, slide. We have here too, Thorin giving explicit and, and significant credit to, uh, to Bilbo's luck. And, and once again, we're calling out his luck as something that Bilbo possesses, that this is a quality that he is, is in possession of and can presumably utilize at will. We know that that's not entirely true, but it, there does seem to be a, a track between Bilbo's luck and Bilbo's willingness to take action. That seems to be a fairly clear and, and concise point of connection between those two ideas. Yes. Um, yes. Good. Okay. Um, so now we are driving um, Bilbo on in, into the, the bowels of the Lonely Mountain on his own. And this is a really interesting uh, point of contrast here because we talked a few weeks ago about Thorin's kidnapping by the Elven King in Mirkwood and Bilbo, of course, coming to the rescue and the other dwarves literally falling over themselves to reintroduce themselves to Bilbo, to pay him that honor, to connect with him in that way. That's enormously significant and enormously powerful but we see here that our time in Lake Town has evaporated all the support that Bilbo had. During the escape from the Elven King's Lair, we talked about how even Thorin was, was recognizing Bilbo's natural authority, if not quite bowing to it outright, though certainly not, not doing that thing. But here we get, we get a very different take. We get a very different... Um, a very different study of Bilbo's relationship with the dwarves. We get a sense here in which Bilbo has been once again relegated back simply to his job, that now he is simply the burglar. So get in there and bring out 25,000 pieces of jewelry, you know, but one at a time, because let's not be nuts. I'm letting my snark show here a little bit at the implausibility of the dwarves' plan. Yes, good. Yes, and Sabrina says, having a ring of invisibility makes it easier to take action here, too. Absolutely fair. Yes. Yes. Good. (laughs) And still a lot of Thorin hate. I do understand it. I really do. Good. Okay, so let's um, push on then to Bilbo actually venturing into the lair of Smaug. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. At any rate, after a short halt, uh, after a short halt, go on, he, excuse me. (coughs) At any rate, after a short halt, go on, he did. And you can picture him coming to the end of the tunnel, an opening of much the same size and shape as the door above. 
Through it peeps the hobbit's little head. Before him lies the great bottommost cellar or dungeon hall of the ancient dwarves, right at the mountain's root. It is almost dark, so that its vastness can only be dimly guessed. But rising from the near side of the rocky floor, there is a great glow. The glow of Smaug. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils, and wisps of smoke, but his fires were low in slumber. Beneath him, under all his limbs and his huge coiled tail, and about him on all sides stretching away across unseen floors, lay countless piles of precious things, gold wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels, and silver red stained in the ruddy light. So, there is here, I mean, obviously, here's the dragon, that's pretty great. Here's the horde, that's pretty great. But there is here, too, something else happening. There is here, too, the presence of what we will refer to later as the dragon sickness. There is a corruptive power to great accumulations of wealth. Wealth is already corruptive in the Lord of the Rings. Certainly an excess is corruptive within the Lord of the Rings. But the accumulation of wealth for no great reason is a direct path to the dragon sickness. Now it is, I think, a point of open contention whether or not dragon sickness stems from the presence of Smaug or whether there was, I guess, a pre-existing condition in this particular regard. Because we must remember that over time, the dwarves began to retreat from the world. They wanted to close up their great doors. They wanted to make themselves beautiful objects of, of spun wire and caught glass and all of these things that we hear described in the Misty Mountains Cold Song. But over time, they turned inward. Over time, they became insular. They stopped connecting with the outside world and started accumulating these things for their own value which means that it is possible that dragon sickness is not caused by dragons, but rather dragon sickness attracts dragons. It may well be the case that it was the, the selfishness, the hubris, the self-destructive impulses of the dwarves, certainly the isolationist policies of the dwarves, that attracted the dragon in the first place. But what is undeniable is that even here, Bilbo is responding to it. Bilbo is feeling that presence, that, that pressure on him. Let's look at the horde itself, shall we? To say that Bilbo's breath was taken away is no description at all. There are no words left to express his staggerment, since men changed the language that they learned of elves in the days when all the world was wonderful. Bilbo had heard tell and sing of dragon hordes before, but the splendor, the lust, the glory of such treasure had never yet come home to him. His heart was filled and pierced with enchantment and with the desire of dwarves, and he gazed motionless, almost forgetting the frightful guardian at the gold beyond price and count. He gazed for what seemed an age before drawn almost against his will. He stole from the shadow of the doorway across the floor to the nearest edge of the mounds of treasure. Above him the sleeping dragon lay, a dire menace even in his sleep. He grasped a great two-handled cup, 
as heavy as he could carry, and cast one fearful eye upwards. Smaug stirred a wing, opened a claw. The rumble of his snoring changed its note. Then Bilbo fled. But the dragon did not wake, not yet, and shifted into other dreams of greed and violence, lying there in his stolen hall while the little hobbit toiled back up the long tunnel. His heart was beating, and a more fevered, a more fevered shaking was in his legs than when he was the, excuse me, than when he was going to sit down, but still he clutched the cup, and his chief thought was, I've done it. This will show them. More like a grocer than a burglar, indeed. Well, you'll hear no more of that. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so what we see here is Bilbo's sudden desire to to take this cup, his sudden desire to, what, to prove something to the dwarves? Well, yes, that seems fair. Um, to take something for himself, to prove, not, not just to, to demonstrate his skill to the dwarves, but to prove his own position as a burglar. Is that maybe part of what's going on? Possibly. Possibly. But it seems to me very clear that in the presence of the dragon, under the influence of the dragon, the draconic urge to hoard, to accumulate, to own, but never to use, becomes all the stronger. And that's bad news. Very bad news indeed, in fact. And we will continue to track through, really, next week's reading, how the dragon sickness operates on those of a weaker disposition, let's say. Good. So from here, we move on to, um, <coughs> I do apologize. Um, yes. Oh, um, Danielle asks, having read the Silmarillion, this time when all the world was wonderful, but men and elves coexisted is hard to pin down. Did I miss a golden age? I love it, though. No, I love it, too. But The Hobbit is not entirely compatible with the Silmarillion. Yes. Good. Yes. Yes. And, and Jean says, all of this thought of dragon sickness and dwarven greed just made me realize how much more deep our conversation of Gimli will, will and can be in a few months. I completely agree. And, and Sarah's recommending hot drinks here. Yes, I have a, uh, I do have some ice water here that I'm, uh, that I'm sipping, which is, I have to say, very good. My throat's actually a little, uh, yes. As Hope says here in the, YouTube, uh, in the Twitter chat, Bilbo was really mad about that grocer dig. He sure is. He's not letting that go at all, at all. Good. Yes, and, and for those of you who are keeping up with the Silmarillion readings, for those of you who have been uh, either, those of you who are familiar with that book, those of you who are delving into that book for the first time, it is worth keeping track of the Dwarven Rings. The Dwarven Rings carry with them an interesting and specific ability, which is simply the accumulation of wealth. If you possess one of these rings, if you were one of the heads of the great dwarven houses, then these rings would effectively seed a hoard for you. They would attract gold and jewels to you so that you can become, you know, all the more corrupted in that way. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Let's, um, let me see here. 
Let's move on to what is, I think, the, the, the highlight of, of uh, tonight's reading, the highlight of this chapter, certainly the highlight of our, our discussion tonight. Let's move on to the first in a two-part discussion of uh, Smaug and Bilbo. So this is after uh, Bilbo wakes Smaug. Well, thief, I smell you and I feel your air. I hear your breath. Come along, help yourself again. There is plenty and to spare. But Bilbo was not quite so unlearned, and Dragon Laura as all that, and if Smaug hoped to get him to come nearer so easily, he was disappointed. No, thank you, oh, Smaug the Tremendous, he replied. I did not come for presents. I only wished to look at you and see if you were truly as great as tales say. I did not believe them. Do you now, said the dragon, somewhat flattered, even though he did not believe a word of it. Truly songs and tales fall utterly short of the reality. Oh, Smaug, the chiefest and greatest of calamities, replied Bilbo. You have nice manners for a thief and a liar, said the dragon. You seem familiar with my name, but I don't seem to remember smelling you before. Who are you? And where do you come from, may I ask? And Shane here in the YouTube chat is calling out an excellent parallel. He's actually calling out the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, the um, first beat in what is effectively a three beat. This is Bilbo in trouble by himself in the darkness beats. The first is, of course, with, well, I guess more broadly the Goblin Tunnels, but certainly with Gollum in Riddles in the Dark. Then the second time is in Mirkwood. Remember when Bilbo wakes up to find the spider already wrapping him? Here, this is the third of Bilbo's solo adventure stories, I guess. And here he's managing to go toe-to-toe with Smaug. Smaug, the chiefest and greatest of calamities, as he is called here. And I tell you what, I would change my Twitter bio to that in like a second. Just like a second. Oh, gosh. Robert says, I hear the voice of Smaug from the Rankin-Bass tune here. Uh, That's not good. It's not good. It's, it's, wow, it's real bad. Do definitely uh, open up a YouTube tab and, and go and, and search for that because I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of some things contained within the Rankin-Bass version of The Hobbit, but not all things. Yes. And as Jonathan calls out here, all three times the ring saved him. Yes, very good, very good. And and Robert's extending the series to trolls. I guess trolls we can count. Yes, absolutely. Good. Good. And Jackie agrees with Robert, too, that she, too, hears the Rankin-Bass version. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> oh, and Cedar Heights says brilliantly, yes, hobbits don't gather gold, so they don't attract dwarves, neither dwarves nor dragons. And we've talked about this before in a slightly different context, that hobbit society back in the Shire is fairly free of this kind of greed. Power is not accumulated. Power is certainly not conserved within within a, a small number of hands. Power seems to be, at least from the account that we get within The Lord of the Rings, we get less of the Shire in general in The Hobbit, but we can be sure that, that Tolkien had developed his sense of what the Shire culture was really like. 
in the Lord of the Rings, it becomes clear that that power is fairly evenly distributed. And yes, there are wealthy hobbits and there are poorer hobbits and there are greater hobbits and, and hobbits, but nonetheless be fairly equitable. It seems to be fairly balanced. It seems to be something that that that, that speaks to, you know, the, the egalitarian culture of the Shire, almost. Hobbits don't generally fall into this trap of, of accumulating and hoarding treasure and wealth. They are perhaps more resistant to, more resilient to the lure of the dragon sickness. And we are going to have fantastic opportunities to talk about that within the dragon sickness is going to be going to be absolutely crucial as we move through the end of the book. That is, I mean, pretty directly what kindles the Battle of Five Armies, which we'll see in just a few weeks' time. And of course, in a broader sense, we're dealing with something even more powerful. We're dealing with Bilbo's resistance to the ring, Bilbo's ability to resist the lure of the ring. And when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, when we get to the long discussions that that Gandalf has with Frodo about the ring, we'll be able to talk a little more directly, a little more purposefully about that. Yes. I'm seeing that I'm losing video from time to time here, guys. I do apologize. Yes. Excellent. Um, And we're talking about the songs from the Rankin-Bass version too. Guys, we might have to live tweet the Rankin-Bass version. I mean, I hate to do that to you, but uh, it may be just necessary at this point. I have no idea. Um, okay, so let's move on. Robert's already calling out here the next um, the next part of this, which is, of course, Bilbo's name game. This is Bilbo answering Smaug's question directly, I guess. Um, and I, meanwhile, will sip this tea that I have just been provided with, for which I am very grateful, so thank you. Let me see here. Um, good. This is uh, Bilbo's response to Smaug demanding to know his name. You may indeed. I come from under the hill, and under the hills and over the hills my path led, and through the air I am he that walks unseen. So I can well believe, said Smaug, but that is hardly your usual name. I am the clue finder, the web cutter, the stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number. Lovely titles, sneered the dragon, but lucky numbers don't always come off. I am he that buries his friends alive and drowns them and draws them alive again from the water. I came from the end of a bag, but no bag went over me. These don't sound so creditable, scoffed Smaug. I am the friend of bears and the guest of eagles. I am ring winner and luck wearer, and I am barrel rider, went on Bilbo, beginning to be pleased with his riddling. This is, ah, I just love this so much. I just love this so much. Not only because it's beautifully written, not only because it is, of course, an echo of the, um, an echo of the uh, the riddle game too, in a sense, but because what we see here is surprisingly deft and sophisticated. Does this sound like Bilbo? Does this sound like the Bilbo that we have known previously? Well, not really. 
He's beginning toward the end here, as we see in that last line. He's beginning to be pleased with his riddling. He's beginning almost to taunt Smaug. And that can't end well. Let's, um, let's look through each of these names, because, of course, the names themselves are, are vital. Um, I come from under the hill, of course. Uh, that's, excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yes, I come from under the hill, and under the hills and over the hills my path has led, and through the air I am he that walks unseen. All fairly straightforward, of course, from under the hill, the passage uh, under the misty mountains, and over the misty mountains, through the air and the eagles, I am he that walks unseen, thanks to the ring, the ring of course. But then we move on to the the, the um, Mirkwood part of the adventure, as he says, I am the clue finder, the web cutter, the stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number. And there is a, um, there is a, slight, uh, a slight snarl of continuity here, which I really rather love. In one of the original drafts of The Hobbit, not the original published version, but, but one of the earliest drafts as Tolkien was writing it, there was a passage during the Mirkwood adventure where Bilbo actually retrieved a, a spindle of spider silk and used it as a means of tracking his path through the darkness, just as Theseus did in The Labyrinth. Now, that was cut from later revisions to The Hobbit, but I think that it endures in this particular reference because I am the clue finder. Clue is an archaic term for a, a ball of thread, essentially, for, for a spindle of, of silken yarn in this instance. There's really no other way in which Bilbo could accurately describe himself as a clue finder. And I should say, too, that that word clue, meaning a, a ball of yarn or a spindle of thread, is the root of our modern word clue, because it is, it is something by which you find your way through, something by which you find your way out. It is an indicator of the direction in which you must travel if you are to be successful. So it inherits all of that meaning from this older version of the word. So for me, clue finder is a relic of an earlier draft of the story that, that when Bilbo actually found a clue of silk, he could use it to escape the labyrinth of Mirkwood. Here, although that adventure now never happened, here we have some reference being made to it. Obviously the web cutter, the stinging fly, once again, we're drawn back to Bilbo's idea of himself as the fly that stings. He is not a great warrior. He is not a hero or a champion. He is not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Smaug in battle, but he can sting and he can be elusive. And then, of course, I was chosen for the lucky number to break the curse of 13. Um, <coughs> excuse me, gosh. Uh, to which, of course, uh, Smaug responds with a certain amount of... Uh, a certain amount of, um, I, what is the word I'm looking for? He, he sneers. He, he responds with a certain amount, uh, a certain lack of credulity. A certain incredulity would also have been another way of putting that. All words just abandoned my brain, you guys. Personally, I think it's the T. Lovely titles sneer the dragon, but lucky numbers don't always come off. This is the idea that, um, that you, can, you can avoid such things. 
Except, of course, when you can't. Yes. Um, I am he that buries his friends alive and drowns them and draws them alive again from the water. I come from the end of a bag, but no bag went over me. No bag went over me, of course, being a reference to the encounter with the trolls way, way back on the other side of the Misty Mountains. Here we see Bilbo moving. He's transiting here from prose to poetry. He is beginning to draw on more abstract and epic ideas. This is enormously powerful. And then, I am the friend of bears and the guest of eagles. I am ring winner and luck wearer, and I am barrel rider. Here, we're doing something even greater, because now we're no longer talking in metaphor. Now we're no longer talking in, in, in symbolism, effectively. Now, Bilbo is actually making claim to these names, to these titles specifically. I am Ring Winner, capital R. I am Luck Wearer, capital L. I am Barrel Rider, capital B. These are enormously powerful ideas. And we see, too, here, of course, the point at which Bilbo's hubris, the point at which Bilbo's growing confidence, growing enjoyment with his riddling game, this is the point at which it breaks apart because... Well, okay, as we'll see next week, mentioning barrels was probably not a good idea, it turns out. Mentioning barrels specifically will have dire, excuse me, dire consequences. But I want to look more closely at the idea of ring winner and luck wearer. Now, we've talked a lot about, about luck wearer. We've talked a lot about, um, about luck as a possession of Bilbo's. And... I think that there is a marked difference here between acknowledging Bilbo's unlikely luck, acknowledging his his surprising luck, and then also making claim to it. Because we've seen before that Bilbo is most successful when his luck opens a door and Bilbo chooses to walk through it, when Bilbo takes action himself in support of his own luck. Luck didn't rescue the dwarves from the halls of the Alvin King. Luck, supported by Bilbo's immediate and bold action, saved the dwarves from the halls of the Alvin King. We see that again and again and again. But to cast yourself as the luck wearer, I feel, is very nearly crossing a line. And if that isn't crossing a line, ring winner certainly is. Now, we must remember that in the original version of The Hobbit, excuse me, we must remember that in the original version of The Hobbit, the riddle game was much more civil. Gollum actually intended to give Bilbo the one ring, excuse me, in the original draft, of course, not the one ring. Gollum actually intended to give Bilbo his magic invisibility ring as a prize for winning the riddle game. So in that sense, in the ultimately, of course, Gollum couldn't do that because Bilbo had already found the ring. And still, and nonetheless, Gollum and Bilbo part on fairly good terms in the original version of The Hobbit. By the time we get to the revised version, of course, 20 years later, there is a great deal more enmity in that chapter. And in that instance, Bilbo's referring to himself as ring winner. Seems at the very least wildly disingenuous. He knows that that's not true. Ring finder, ring stealer, ring taker, perhaps, but not, I think, by any real fair measure, ring winner. Which really prompts us to ask what is happening here. 
Conventional wisdom, were this the Lord of the Rings, might suggest that this is the ring's influence on Bilbo, that the ring itself is seeking to make Bilbo more assertive, more grand, more powerful, more forceful, that the ring is working its influence upon Bilbo and he is being carried along. But I'm not sure that's the case. And it certainly wasn't the case when Tolkien was originally writing this book. Instead, I think what we're seeing here is a manifestation of the dragon sickness. I think what we're seeing here is Bilbo succumbing to the same corruptive intent, the same corruptive influence as Smaug himself has succumbed to. That that the dragon sickness isn't just about the gold and the treasure, though it certainly is about the gold and the treasure. It is also about this arrogance, this superiority, this, this dangerous belief that you are invulnerable, that you are all-powerful. And certainly we will see an echo of that from Smaug in just a moment. And that's, yeah. It's the dragon sickness, says Angela. Angela at least is certain. Good, good, good. Robert says Bilbo isn't bluffing here. He's naming himself. His one big moment, probably in facing death, he's hitting all the goals in the last moments. That's a really interesting, that's a really interesting interpretation. I like that quite a lot. That that believing that he is going to die, believing that he has has found his way into an inescapable situation, Bilbo is now drawing his own reputation around him like a cloak. He is, is, is clothing himself in his own names and in his own accomplishments, in his own achievements. That's, that's powerful. I like that idea. And I'm not sure that it's incompatible with the idea of the dragon sickness also kind of, of, of contributing to that influence. The most powerful influences that we'll see in the Lord of the Rings are, occur when, or in Tolkien's work, occur when two or three disparate influences happen to momentarily coincide. And if that's the case here, I think it works really rather well. Good, let me see. Um, hmm. Um, <laughs> yes, we're having some, having some really good conversations in the YouTube chat tonight. This is excellent. Yes. Yes. Um, good, good. Y- yes. Gene says, in a way, is Bilbo also stepping up to Smaug's hubris and presenting his names? It's, yes, I, I think that may well exactly be it. Yes. Good. Yes. And as Jackie says here, ring finder, ring finder would have been more honest. And that's all the more true when we look back on these events from the perspective of the Lord of the Rings. Because once we know Gollum's story, once we know the story of Smeagol and Deagol, they're supposed to be split like that, by the way. I kind of hate it. It's Smeagol. I don't think I like that. But uh, we'll probably go with Smeagol as we move through uh, the Lord of the Rings itself. But, um, But as we understand how that came about... How, how he discovered or, or, or gained the ring in the first place, we'll begin to see this pattern of justification. We'll begin to, to explore this notion that the first thing the ring does is reassure you that you are the rightful bearer of the ring. And this turn from ring finder to ring winner, and, and the way in which that implies a natural authority, the way in which that implies a, a sense of actual justice, that's powerful. That is not to be overlooked from a 
quasi extra textual point of view, you know, while we're folding in our understanding of the Lord of the Rings here. Yes. Yes. Gene says, we cannot fairly look at the ring's influence in The Hobbit, can we? It's never given to us in this text specifically, but here's the thing. We kind of can, only because Tolkien was so extraordinary at what he did. The number of elements taken from The Hobbit and put to specific purpose in The Lord of the Rings in support of this new story that is being told about the ring is, is dizzying, is, is stunning. So while it is true that the ring's influence was not in Tolkien's head while he was writing this chapter, that doesn't mean that we can't retroactively come back and find applicability there within these passages. Right. Um, yes, as Victoria says here on Twitter, the ring definitely feels like a different object in The Hobbit than in The Lord of the Rings. And of course, it absolutely was in The Hobbit. It is, it's, it's Bilbo's magic invisibility ring. It's one of dozens, if not hundreds, of such rings scattered all over the surface of Middle-earth. It has no great significance whatsoever, except that when he wanted to write the sequel for The Hobbit and he needed a hook, Tolkien turned to the ring and transformed it into the One Ring. And that obviously shifts its its position within the uh, within the story a great deal. Good. Lady Circus says Tolkien was the master of the retcon. That is is I mean absolutely true, but it's almost to do him a disservice uh, by saying I mean yes, the man could could retcon could could fold stories around themselves in incredibly complex but also incredibly subtle and beautiful ways. Yes, I mean you're absolutely right. Good. Good. Okay. Um, excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, uh, Nikki says, I interpreted it as Bilbo claiming who he is, then getting carried away by the influence of the dragon sickness, plus the desire to make himself appear bigger and better to preserve his life. That's an interesting interpretation, too. I like that quite a lot. From here, we move forward into our, uh, well... There's really no way to be nice about this. Um, the dwarves' plan makes no sense. And that is only exacerbated in chapter 10 when we get to Lake Town and suddenly the, the tone of the book takes a turn. The dwarves themselves are heralded. And then we get to the Lonely Mountain. And as Smaug is about to ask, what was the plan? I don't know if it has occurred to you that... Even if you could steal the gold bit by bit, a matter of a hundred years or so, you could not get it very far. Not much use on the mountainside, not much use in the forest. Bless me. Had you never thought of the catch? A fourteenth chair, I suppose, or something like it. Those were the terms. But what about delivery? What about cartage? What about armed guards and tolls? And Smaug laughed aloud. He had a wicked and a wily heart, and he knew his guesses were not far out. Though he suspected that the lake men were at the back of the plans, and that most of the plunder was meant to stop there in the town by the shore that in his young days had been called Esgaroth. You will hardly believe it, but poor Bilbo really was taken, very taken aback. So far, all his thoughts and energies had been concerned on getting to the mountain and finding the entrance. He had never bothered to wonder how the, mount, how the treasure was to be moved. Certainly never how any part of it that might fall to his share was to be brought back all the way to Bag End Underhill. This is... Um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, this is um, absolutely fair. <laughs> I love that Smaug takes one look at this plot and says, ah, no, I'm going to need another rush before we, uh, before we get to it. I'm going to need something more here about the treasure before we get right to it. But at the same time, it allows us to explore these direct interactions, which are, are absolutely pivotal to the book. That beginning of the second paragraph there, you will hardly believe it, but poor Bilbo was really very taken aback. That's th this double kind of incredulity that not only is Bilbo taken aback, not only can Bilbo have trouble believing his ears, but you, when you hear this detail, also won't believe your ears. That's fascinating. I mean, the way that it's constructed is fascinating. And I feel as though a lesser author in exactly this circumstance would have Smaug play some extra textual fourth wall breaking game with the audience. And I'm thrilled that we don't do that here. He does call it out. It is an unwise plan. It is not, we don't seek to, to cover that or appease it or, or explain it away. We just lean into it, which is absolutely, I think, the right choice. Good. <clears throat> yes. Yes, as Jean says here, so often it's said we only look, we can only look at what the text gives us, but with these books and this story, it seems almost impossible to not look at the Tolkien Legendarium as a whole. And this specific instance, Jean, I think you are completely right. I do think it behooves us to look at books as as single units, to to study stories uncontaminated by the comments of of the 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 popular discourse on the internet or the comments of the author him or herself you know it's it's a purer experience to simply dive into the book and to respond to the story itself and not have to bracket any extra information any any extra textual information but all the same if you're going to do it you should do it with Tolkien all right Danielle says there's something so weird about Snow talking about cartage. It's like he knows about markets or taxes and things too. So mundane a thing. Yes, I completely agree. It is, it is an odd one. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> to this, Bilbo replies that they are not here purely for gold. They are instead here, well, with a bloodier purpose in mind. I tell you, he said, in an effort to remain loyal to his friends and to keep his end up, that gold was only an afterthought with us. We came over hill and under hill by wave and wind for revenge. Surely, O oh, Smaug, the unassessably wealthy, you must realize that your successors had made you some bitter enemies. Excuse me, that your success has made you some bitter enemies. Then Smaug really did laugh and a devastating sound which shook Bilbo to the floor while far up in the tunnel the dwarves huddled together and imagined that the hobbit had come to a sudden and a nasty end. Revenge, he snorted, and the light of his eyes lit the hall from floor to ceiling like scarlet lightning. Revenge, the king under the mountain is dead, and where are his kin that dare seek revenge? Girion, lord, 
Nodale is dead, and I have eaten his people like a wolf among sheep. And where are his sons' sons that dare approach me? I kill where I wish, and none dare resist. I laid low the warriors of old, and their like is not in the world today. Then I was but young and tender, old and strong, strong, strong thief in the shadows, he gloated. My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords. My claws, spears. The shock of my tail, a thunderbolt. My wings, a hurricane. And my breath, death. We've really incited something from Smaug here. As Robert says, revenge, the password that set off Smaug. This is a word Smaug comprehends. Bilbo's riddle has failed. This is <coughs> a really great moment for Smaug because we see, I think, what happens when his hubris is challenged. Because he was cheerful, I guess. He was happy, I guess, to torment Bilbo, to play these little games, knowing that he is stronger. But here we see a shift, and it's almost a shift toward the more poetical. I kill where I wish and none dare resist. Or now I am old and strong, strong, strong. The repetition there feeling very poetic at this point. So we're seeing an increase in the tone of the drama, even as we're moving through to, to surprising and heartbreaking consequences. Yeah. Good. Um, yes. Good. Good. Yeah. And we're talking a little about the, uh, we're talking a little about the balancing act between the Hobbit and the legendarium. Of course. Yes. Yes. Sarah says it's kind of a balance between looking at The Hobbit by itself and putting it in the canon. I like that both views are here. Kanoni Nitt says, at the time when I first read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, there was no legendarium. Well, none that was readily accessible, none that was, uh, was open to public consumption. But yes, yes, that's right. Good. Good. Dylan the Joel says, I'm hearing some echo from my end, which makes this smile reading awesome. I hope no one else is getting echo. That would be a terrible thing. I apologize. Yes. Good. Good. Yes, the, the now I am old and strong, strong, strong. We will, <clears throat> well, I don't really have time, I guess, to get into it tonight, but we will revisit something that sounds very similar to that, that also leans toward the poetical by the time that we get to the Lord of the Rings. If you remember very, very early in the Fellowship of the Ring and, and Sam's nod toward poetry as he describes the elves leaving and he says that they are sailing, sailing, sailing. And he too repeats the same word three times, just as Smaug does here, to rhythmic effect. It feels Poetic. It feels as though we're, we're saying more than is strictly being said. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, still had that slide up. That's fine. <laughs> <That's>... <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Okay, this is our last. Uh, this is our last slide for this evening, which is a good thing because I don't think that my throat can take much more of this, you guys. But it's all good. Here we are. This is the last slide for this evening. This is after Bilbo has escaped from the depredations of Smaug deep beneath the Lonely Mountain and returns to the surface and is talking with the dwarves. And here we get the introduction of what will be ultimately one of the most important elements of the plot in the closing chapters of this book. From that, the talk turned to the Great Horde itself and to the things that Thorin and Balin remembered. They wondered if they were still lying there, unharmed in the hall below, the spears that were made for the armies of the great King Bladorthin, long since dead. Each had a thrice-forged head, and their shafts were inlaid with cunning gold, but they were never delivered or paid for. Shields made for warriors long dead, the great golden cup of Thror, two-handed, hammered and carven with birds and flowers whose eyes and petals were of jewels, Coats of mail, gilded and silvered and impenetrable. The necklace of Girion, Lord of Dale, made of five hundred emeralds green as grass, which he gave for the arming of his eldest son in a coat of dwarf-linked rings, the like of which had never been made before, for it was wrought of pure silver to the power and strength of triple steel. But fairest of all was the great white gem, which the dwarves had found beneath the roots of the mountain, the heart of the mountain the Arkenstone of Thrain. The Arkenstone, the Ar <coughs> excuse me, the Arkenstone, the Arkenstone, murmured Thorin in the dark, half dreaming with his chin upon his knees. It was like a globe with a thousand facets. It shone like silver in the firelight, like water in the sun, like snow under the stars, like rain upon the moon. The Arkenstone will be tremendously significant, but I want to look at, before we talk, I guess we can't even really talk about the Arkenstone because we'll, we'll get to it soon enough, but I want to look at the things that are listed here and the ways in which our understanding of the kingdom of Erebor from our close textual reading of the Misty Mountain song back at the very beginning of the book, the ways in which that reading are, are supported now by this passage. Because here we're seeing, again, the dwarves creating beautiful things, but now they're being, again, hoarded, used, not utilized, not given away critically, but just hoarded. That this perhaps is what drew the dragon. This perhaps is what lured them close. Jackie says, pure silver, is that mithril? Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, Nikki says, is the Arkenstone like a Silmaril? Okay, let's do this quickly. Um, I mean, yes, in some senses. The Arkenstone is not a Silmaril. Um, we know that for sure, because the Arkenstone simply behaves in, in, in some different ways. What is interesting, though, is that when J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, translating, um, <coughs> excuse me, was translating his work into Anglo-Saxon, the word that he used for the Silmaril, the, the word that he used for Silmarils in Anglo-Saxon was Earkenstana, which is literally, um, I, I think it's literally like hallowed or holy stone. So, I mean, yes, there's kind of a linguistic connection between the two of them, but the Arkenstone is not a Silmaril. It is 
in some senses, at least Silmaril-esque. It is very precious, obviously. It is it is magical. It is imbued with light. So there are connections, but but yes. What is the Silmaril, says the Ocean Palace? That's a Silmarillion question. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Robert says, Silmarils are bad juju. Arkenstones are bad juju. That's pretty good. It's pretty close. Yes, good. As Cedar Heights says, the Arkenstone, the heart of the mountain, was that the stone that corrupted the hearts of the dwarves and led them into the dragon sickness? Certainly, if you subscribe to the point of view put forth by Peter Jackson in the first Hobbit movie, he draws a connection between the Arkenstone itself and uh, and the dragon sickness and, and the, 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 the more insular turn that dwarven culture takes at that point. Yes, good, good. Okay, let's, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Let's um, wrap it up then, I guess. I guess that's it. I, I know, I'm looking here and, uh, yes. Uh, Shane asks, the Silmarils were forged. Do all mountains have a heart? This is absolutely a point of, of interesting speculation. What do we mean by the heart of the mountain? What is the exact nature of the Arkenstone? We're going to try and... Uh, and tease some of that out as we move through our descriptions of the Arkenstone later. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. Though Cedar Heights says the Arkenstone releases beautiful light, dwarves hide it for themselves. Though, I mean, yes, that is true. Though we are, I think, led to believe that some of the jewelry, some of the the creations of the dwarven shops here are also radiant in that sense they also give out light but it is a light that is that is caught and captured it is a light that is put to fundamentally different use so i i don't think it's unique in that it's radiant and that it gives out light but i see what you're saying yes good good okay let's um Yes, that's it. That's it for tonight. I'm sorry, my throat is just killing me. Okay, let's take a quick look here and look at what we will discuss next time. <clears throat> next session, The Hobbit, 13 and 14, Not at Home and Fire and Water. That will be 9 p.m. Eastern Thursday, March the 30th, 2017. So that is next Thursday night. We'll get to chapters 13 and 14, Not at Home and Fire and Water. This is where things really kick into high gear. This is where the last part of the story really starts moving forward. And I can't wait to discuss it all with you. That's that's great. That's 9.30. That's pretty much time for us to wrap up anyway. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported me over the course of the last few days as I have launched Point North. If you would like to help me out with that, well, firstly... Come hang out tomorrow. I think tomorrow afternoon, stay tuned on Twitter for a time and date announcement for sure. But I think tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to run a live stream from this very YouTube account, just talking about my plans for Point North, talking about our upcoming seminar schedule, talking about, as I've said before, I, I want to find a means of, of democratizing the process by which we can select the next seminar book. So I've given that some thought. We'll have some, some discussion about that too. So stay tuned on Twitter for more information there, and then you'll be able to uh, join me for the live stream tomorrow. And if you would like to support what I do, if you would like more there and back again, if you would like more story in Star Wars, if you would like more Dear Mr. Potter or In Want of a Wife or any one of the 
got literally 300 things that I have written down in a notepad right here on my desk. If you would like more of this kind of thing, then please head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash pointnorthmedia. Guys, thank you so much. Um, I did. I did. Sarah says, I promised the nerd schedules. I super did. It's coming. I promise. Yes. And, and, and honey, absolutely. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sipping tea now. It's going to be good. I just won't say anything for the next like 24 hours. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You guys, it's not a problem. I'm, I'm sure everyone who knows me knows that I oftentimes go 24 hours without saying a thing of any significance at all. Hmm. Okay, let's wrap this thing up. Guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. I hope that my voice hasn't been too bad. The podcast version of this uh, this installment will be available tomorrow in the regular feed. I am like 90% sure that you won't have to adjust your podcast feed settings. That, that should just all work out. It should all be fine. I'll edit this and tidy it up a little bit, I guess. Make it a little cleaner. Make it a little nicer to listen to. Thank you all so much for hanging out. I will see you all next week. Until then, take care and, you know, don't get sick. <laughs> <laughs>